This is Kim Richmond, president of ASMAC, and on behalf of the board, I welcome you to another ASMAC podcast. What you're about to hear is a recording of one of our monthly luncheon presentations, recorded at Catalina's Jazz Club in Hollywood. These podcasts feature leading Hollywood composers, arrangers, orchestrators, and musicians talking about their lives in music. May I present Steve Picaro? Hi there, everybody. So we've been talking about this for years, <laughs> and uh, Steve is, hasn't really been in town for years. So, so some of the things that you've been doing are, okay, so you're, you're in Toto, mm -hmm. we know that, and you uh, wrote music for Justified, which was a real hit show, TV show. And, um, and now you have a new album called Someday Some... How? Which of these is more important to you right now? Right now, the solo album is because it's the first time since I guess I was a kid in school where I was able to finish some music and not have to answer to anybody, have the final word, not have a band member or bandmate or um, even co-writer to, to have to compromise with or a producer or director to have to appease. I just... I had the final say, and, um, and it felt great. So some of the songs you started a long time ago, mm -hmm. and some of them are new, mm -hmm. and you have a lot of people that worked on this. Yeah. A lot of the songs were songs I had started years ago, some even in the 80s, and um, you know, I have, uh, without a deadline, I really struggle finishing anything at all. Um, so a lot of my songs, I make it to that third verse, and the third verse lyric will kick my ass or something and it winds up on a shelf because I'm working on the next song and that kind of keeps going and uh, as soon as it would become hard or difficult or actually work, I would abandon it for whatever I was chasing after next and I wound up with quite a lot of songs on the shelf unfinished so um, I made a conscious decision that even without a deadline or without a record deal or whatever, I was going to put together a, a batch of these songs that uh, just over the years, some go away, but some just never went away to me. And I always thought they were still valid and I still liked listening they to are. them. <laughs> and um, I liked playing them and I finished them. So, so when you're songwriting, what's, what is your, um, what's your favorite thing? What's the easiest thing for you to do? You're a keyboard player, so that's... Yeah, it usually starts off at the piano, but sometimes it'll start off on a synth, uh, getting a certain sound that'll kind of bring me, take me somewhere. I'll be kind of serving the sound and going where the sound wants me to take it. But it's usually the piano, and I usually start off with uh, chord changes. If I get the chord changes right, the melody's very easy for me. But um, I've always been a chord change guy. Because Toto has been, is, is a brilliant pop group, really. Um, is that your, that is your favorite kind of music to write, to play, or do, what else do you like? Toto music? Yeah. Uh, you know, Toto music, music, my part of Toto music is my favorite music to write and play. You know, um, you know, for a long time, like all of us, I, I was trying to, uh, um, I got tired of going on the road, I had had some luck writing songs, and I wanted to see how 
if I could continue that, if I could continue staying home and just writing songs and making a living. And as I said before, I found out that without a deadline, I was useless. And, um, and I dove into film. Uh, I had some friends who were successful in the film music world, and I tried my hand at that for a while, and I absolutely loved it. Number one reason, there was a deadline, and I was actually able to finish things. Um, but I found that I was kind of, uh, uh, when it got down to it, I, I felt I had something individual to say, but for the most part, I was kind of actually being a watered-down version of other composers out there. Um, um, and really where I am at is songwriting. That's really what it is I do very easily. I love the challenge of writing for film. I, I absolutely adore it. I like a lot of what I come up with, but um, really where my heart is at, I've found, is songwriting, and that's what I, writing my kind of songs, I think I do that better than anybody, and it's not watered down. It's just me being the best version of me I can be. Mm. And... Um, I really would love to not do anything else the rest of my life, you know, if I had, if I had a choice. So, so you worked on Justified, so mm -hmm. how did that come about, the television show? Uh, it came about through a friend of mine, Greg Sill, a music supervisor who I'd been trying to get in with and trying to get him to put me up for shows, and finally we, um, I did a pilot. He had a pilot, he was working with some people and there was no budget, and I did it for free. And he really liked what I did, and I kind of got in on a meeting for, a, um, for another show called Reigns uh, mm -hmm. that only lasted 13 episodes, but then the same producer did Justified. And it was a guitar-oriented show, and I'm not a guitar player, but he gave me a shot and mm -hmm. liked what I did, and we just finished a six-year run on that. Ah, wonderful. Yeah. So who were you orchestrators yeah. on uh, Justified? On Justified, I had no orchestrators. It was just me, for the most part. I'd bring, in a, um, I'd bring in lots of players, a fiddle player. I'd bring in a... I worked with a guitar player every week. It was a guitar-driven show. Um, but there were no orchestrators. The last really big movie I did, um, movie stuff I did, it was Brad Dechter and Jeff Majin and uh, some others. Mm -hmm. So, um, well, that's wonderful. Um, and... and basically was justified, was that a good experience? It was great because uh, um, anyone who works with film will, will appreciate this. The, the producers were incredibly protective. I, the previous TV work I'd done, I'd worked with a producer often who constantly would throw me under the bus as far as when there'd be conflicting input as far as how a scene should be scored and sometimes you get the studio thinks it should go one way and the network thinks it should go another way and even producing partners will disagree on... Um, it's usually the sign that it's a shitty show and that's the case, but... Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, I had to deal with that a lot, with uh, getting conflicting notes and just trying to make everybody happy and go down the middle, but... Um, wasn't real memorable music in my opinion, but on, this sh on Justified, I had these amazing producers who all had to deal with network notes in every aspect of the show, but as far as music went, unless they agreed with them, they wouldn't even pass them on to me. They wouldn't let me see them. Uh, there was one producer I dealt with on a weekly basis, and we just had a great rapport. Um, and, um, a dream, it was a, a dream team. It was huh? a dream job, mm. and I'm kinda, I don't know if I could ever do it any other way again. <laughs> kinda spoiled me. So, um, so because you, toured with Toto for such a long time and then you stopped touring. Mm -hmm. Then 
you started up again about five years ago. So what is it like being in front of a million adoring fans? It's a blast now. Uh, there's a lot less of all the silliness that went on back in the 80s. And, um, you know, the band and I were always kind of at, uh, you know, we were at odds each other back in the day because I was kind of always trying to stretch out my studio time and, and trying to, uh, um, you know, I was trying to do things different. They would beg me just to do what I did in the studio for Quincy Jones or whoever else where I'd go in there and in three hours do three songs, but this was my band, so I wanted to write it out, I wanted to arrange it, I, I wanted my synths in total to be very different than my synths on a three-hour session that you could call me for. So, mm -hmm. um, which, they, which they are. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. But it used to drive the guys nuts because I used to kind of wish that I would just go in and do, you know, spit it out. Um, so it caused some, um, some head bumping. Mm -hmm. But now, uh, now that I'm back in the band, they beg me to do that stuff. <laughs> they, you know, they, now that there's, you know, some hindsight there, they realize that, um, you know, mm -hmm. I was never a player like David Page. I never was a player really like any of the other guys in the band. Um, you know, this is the only time you're ever going to see me on the stage at Catalina Jazz Club. Um, I won't be he headlining with my bebop band here. But um, they came to realize what it was I did bring to the table as far as um, arrangement and um, pizzazz. Well, you like, this, you like synthesizers. I love synthesizers. You, you embrace synthesizers. Yeah, no, I, I, back in the day, uh, uh, Mike Lang can, can tell you this, you know, back in the day there was this real void. You know, when I was in high school coming up, I, I saw my brother Jeff, his career just took off out of high school. I saw my brother Mike, his career took off out of high school. And I was a senior in high school, and I'm getting all ready to follow my brother's footsteps, and I'm looking out there, and there's... David Page, David Foster, Michael O'Mardian, Mike Lang. There was these amazing keyboard players that I was nowhere near close to as far as talent or ability or nowhere near close to. Um, and that's when I kind of saw, though, this gaping hole as far as synthesizers went, where now it's common, everyone kind of knows this stuff and uses this stuff. There was a real void between the guys who really knew synthesizers, which were kind of guys with pocket protectors and kind of nerdy and not guys who, you know what I mean, were very hip as far as musicality went. And then the very best players who, uh, you know, wouldn't touch. Vladimir Horowitz, I'm sure, wouldn't touch a synthesizer. It would ruin his touch. And, you know, so there was this huge void there, and I kind of saw it as a, um, an opportunity to jump in and kind of be, try to be the hip synth geek in town, you know? And um, it was great because a lot of those guys I mentioned, like David Foster and David Page and some others, they, they started hiring me to just kind of come with them whenever they did since. So uh, it was great because I got to be on a lot of these great projects that I never, ever would have been a part of if I was the keyboard player. So, so did Quincy bring you into Thriller? He did. He mm -hmm. did. Again, that, the way that happened was on the, Michael's very first solo album, uh, Off the Wall, David Foster brought me in. David Foster wrote two songs on the album, and um, at that time, he kind of discovered he liked having me around when he was doing synthesizers. I kind of, you know, it was handy to have me around, and Quincy called him in to do keyboards on the two songs he had written with Michael, and um, that's the first time I met Bruce Swedeen and Quincy and Michael, and they started calling me on my own ever since then. Oh. That's great. Mm -hmm. So, uh, did that album 
thriller was that? Did that take forever to 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 get released? And I mean, I'm sure it was like you and every other studio player was probably working yeah. for years, probably on it. Yeah. Well, I would. You know, it wasn't that long for me. I know they pretty much almost finished the album uh, almost before I even started getting involved. Um, and they called me at first to just do synthesizer overdubs, and I pretty much worked on the whole album. But um, you know, I could tell they were always usually maybe erasing someone's part like right before I would put on my part. And I, I realized that about Quincy, what uh, uh, was so great, of, great about him as a producer. Now he had the budget to do this. A lot of times when I'd be called to do a synthesizer overdub, that was the time allotted and the budget allotted to do the synth parts. And we were gonna get them that night, no matter what, you know. Um, with Quincy, everything was always a groove and everything was happening and it was incredible and he'd erase your shit in two seconds after you walked out, you know, and, uh, and I knew that half the time I was replacing someone else's stuff and half the time someone was replacing my stuff. Uh, he just would kind of, he would let a few guys take a stab at things and keep what was best, you know. So, so tell us about um, growing up with your dad being a drummer and so... Where were the drums in the house? Did he, did he play in the house all the time? And absolutely, um, absolutely. Um, starting when I would say when we moved to California and uh, we first lived in Studio City, this is 1967. We moved here in like 66. He would, uh, he'd practice in the den and um, uh, I remember very well, my brother Jeff at the time was practicing all the time with all of his Hendrix groups and making quite a noise, but my dad one night was tapping out a few, as we used to say, um, practicing his drums, and a drunk next-door neighbor threw a baseball bat through the window. And that prompted my dad to move. We put the house up for sale the next day, and we moved to um, Sherman Oaks. And before we moved in, he converted the garage into a soundproof studio. So it was great having that growing up. Rehearsal was always at our house. Right, Mike? <laughs> So, when did you meet Mike Lang? Very early on. Uh, my brother Jeff... Obviously, you're... Yeah, and David Page's high school group was called Rural Still Life, which was taken from a Tom Scott album that had Mike Lang on the cover with everyone else. Um, you influenced so many people. Well, for us, uh, you know, yeah, I had a few rock musicians like Keith Emerson that, of course, I was enamored with, but our, our huge heroes for all of us growing up were studio musicians. Mm -hmm. It was, keyboard-wise, it was Leon Russell and Don Randy and Mike Lang and all these guys that played on sessions. Um, did you um, go to sessions with I your, did. With your I did. dad? I did. I went to a lot with my dad. Um, mm -hmm. You know, he did more, he did a lot of records in the 60s and 70s, but more, always more film. And those were the sessions I loved to go to, were the film sessions. I loved uh, just seeing the whole, how the whole thing was done. You know, you together. met Perry Botkin, and he talks about going to sessions when he was little with his dad playing guitar. Cool. And so did, was it like you three boys, like just sit over there and shut up? No, no, it was just me sit over there and shut up, you know. Mm. <laughs> it was great. No, and I got to meet a lot of, you know what I mean, a lot of, I got to meet a lot of great players and... Um, so who were some of your, well, you were just mentioned your mentors. Anybody else that you can Yeah, you know, my, my dad, my, my uh, um, you know, if you looked at who my piano teachers were growing up, you'd think I'd play like Lenny Tristano, but uh, it's far from the case. Um, my dad, uh, you know, would constantly be asked, because he was a drum teacher, he'd be asked to teach some of his fellow musicians drums, and my dad would usually barter with them and try to get especially the keyboard players to teach me piano. 
which they did, and some of them had curriculums and a lot of them didn't. Um, but it was great experience, and I remember I, for a long time, I was, for the longest time, I was taken from a guy named Pete Robinson, and at the same time, I was taken from Claire Fisher. Mm. And they're both brilliant, and, and it was, I loved it, because I would kind of let them see the other guy's lesson, and uh, they'd always rag on the other guy, saying, <laughs> what a waste of time that lesson. <laughs> there was something about, and it just kind of made me want to continue taking from each of them, because they were so uh, uh, radically different <laughs> as far as their approaches. Oh, Claire, she's amazing. Mm -hmm. um, Claire's okay. great. Yeah, miss him. So, um, so how do you juggle your life? I mean, how do you juggle your, your family? And, you know, I guess you have times, like all entertainment business people, they have times where they're working and times where they're not working. Is that yeah. kind of what, how you do that? You know, I, uh, it's like everyone else. I, when I'm not working, it's, it's, I panic, you know? <laughs> um, no, life's been, I've been very, very lucky. I've been really, really fortunate. I, I've won the lottery in the music business several times, but uh, um, I feel, but I still have those, um, there's still times in between gigs and, you know, after a couple marriages and some bad business decisions, I still have to work like everyone else does. And, um, and it's, downtime is, um, I embrace it a lot more now because I, I, especially that I'm really encouraged with my songwriting to really dig into that. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. But there's always bills to pay. And, and this is your first solo CD, which mm -hmm. is, it is amazing. It so is. That's what you were hearing when you walked in. What um, a great time to jump into the record business. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you said you played drums? I did a so, little bit. So you just went into the den and... Well, the like drums were just always there. And yeah. the only way my brother Jeff practiced, um, the only way I ever saw him practice, he maybe did a couple of rudiments when he was really young, but he just played to records all the time. You know, it was just a constant thing with the headphones on, playing to records. And I think he must have been playing to the right records, you know. Mm, yeah. His heroes were always the Jim Gordons and Jim Keltners and these guys that were known for great pockets and time and great studio players and not less, not, he never cared about drum solos at all. Um, it was about deep pocket and playing a groove. And uh, so when he wasn't doing it, I'd throw the headphones on and, and uh, crank up the stereo and play along on drums. It was, so, it was fun. So how did, how did um, David Page come into your life? And is it through your father's? Sure or was. Marty Page and Joe Porcaro? My dad, uh, about the second or third year we were here in town, uh, my dad got the Glenn Campbell show, Good Time Hour. It was a variety show on CBS, and it was a huge deal to him because it was a steady gig. It was, uh, you know, it was a show he had every week, and Marty Page was the music director on the show, and they, from having discussions, Marty dug the way my dad played tambourine, you mm -hmm. know, the way my dad could play gospel tambourine is, was what he said was one of the reasons he hired him, but um, they, uh, talking to each other, they discovered they had sons the same age who were in bands, and they got them together. And was it Jeff, Jeff that was in a ba band with Marty? With Dave. Oh, with Dave. Yeah. 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 They had that band Rural Still Life all through high school. Oh, right, right. And they pretty much kind of copied the band after uh, we were all huge fans of Joe Cocker had done this tour called Mad Dogs and Englishmen. And it had horns and it had background singers. And 
they pretty much did that set intact. They pretty, pretty much did every one of those tunes. And Leon Russell was in the band, and it was the double drums, Jim Gordon, Jim Keltner. They, and, uh, um, wow. they pretty much kind of uh, uh, did that and a bunch of R&B stuff. And when I first, when they left high school and I entered high school, I took the band over and did those same charts and added a few of my own. I was into Edgar Winter's White Trash and some other kind of R&B bands, and I would add my own stuff to it. But, um, and then a couple of years later, I changed things around. But. So you were the little brother? Absolutely. And so how did the little brother get in with, with David Page and your brothers in Toto? With great difficulty. Really? Did you have to go, I'm over here? Well, Jeff was just three years older, but when you're mm. kids, you know, yeah, when you're teenagers, that's huge. I was definitely the annoying little brother who was trying to tag along all the time. Um, but Jeff, for the most part, and that department was an absolute sweetheart and uh, included me quite a bit. And they, um, when I was not quite out of high school, six months before I graduated, I got a gig touring with Gary Wright. And um, he had this big album out right then called Dreamweaver. And it was an all-keyboard band, and all I had to do was play Moog bass. It was definitely something I could handle. I wasn't uh, expected to blow through any changes or anything like that. Um, and I'd learned with some friends in high school how to get a basic sound out of a mini Moog, and I got the tour, I got the job. And uh, David and Jeff saw me play with them. David saw how good I was at synthesizers and live and handling handling that live, and that was kind of right when him and Jeff had done the Silk Degrees album with Boz Skaggs. David Page wrote most of the songs on it with mm, Boz. Great. And it was my brother Jeff on drums and David Hungate on bass, and it kind of became the basis of Toto. And then uh, the touring band was, they added me and Steve Lukather on guitar to tour for that, for that band. And um, then Jeff and David really saw what I could bring to the table, and when they decided to start Toto, they thought I'd come in handy, you know, covering, covering David's overdubs, you know, um, which is how, what my role in the band was when I started off, and it kind of developed from there. Was David on the piano, mostly, or he was, was he on, on everything. Synth? He was interested in synthesizers then. David's a great, you know, piano, uh, basic keyboard parts, piano, Rhodes, Hammond. David was the guy. David, even on my songs, uh, songs that I knew very well, songs that I wrote, and I loved playing them when it got down to the studio and it got time to execute the part, you know, I would show David, this is what it is, this is the keyboard part, and I, you know, would want it nailed and locked in with Jeff and mm -hmm. want it to feel good, and I'd have David execute my parts, you know, mm -hmm. for sure. Well, then you can look at it differently that way, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, I was, I was more interested in being a composer than I was in being the, the Well, you have a player. lot of, you know, we talked about rhythm. So y you have a lot of rhythm in your keyboard parts, mm -hmm. don't you think? Absolutely. Do you think that's from playing drums, too? Sure, sure. And also from being nervous and playing too busy sometimes. <laughs> but you don't have any trouble with that on... Um, with the huge thousands and thousands of people in the audience. Do you get nervous with that? I sometimes get a little nervous, sure. It's kind of healthy butterflies. As long as it's not me and I'm kind of part of a band and I'm able yeah. to hide behind keyboards, I'm usually okay. Yeah. And, Nothing um, a half a Xanax can't help. Yeah. <laughs> so, so um, 
So what about new songs? What's next for your new songs? Are you working on that? I mean, as we speak, am I, I writing mean, new like songs right or now. the new songs like, on my album? Like, here's a pad of paper. <laughs> no, here's a so, piano. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I mean, are you working on... I'm always writing. I mean, you just have this, you know, CD out, so mm -hmm. it's... Weird. I'm always writing. The CD feels good because I finally, like I said, some songs that were at least 30 years old and things that were sitting on the shelf, I, it really felt amazing to really finish them. There were always things I always liked that always stuck around. Like I said... Some songs I'll write and I'll, I'll think they're incredible, but after three or four months, I've forgotten about them, mm -hmm. you know, because I'm always moving on. But all these were songs that just didn't seem to want to go away for mm -hmm. some reason or another. So it felt great to actually finish them, you know. And I like to think now what helped me finish them was doing six years on a TV show where I had to deliver it uh -huh. every week, yep. you know, whether I felt like it or not. It really was... Uh, um, it really was me finally growing up, to tell you the truth. I'd had some TV work before, and I'd done some movies, and I've always met my deadlines, but doing a show for six years like that, I kind of really developed my finishing muscle, and um, I know this may sound silly to a lot of you experienced writers out there, but it was, the, it was the first time I ever had to really go to work on a regular basis, and sometimes I didn't feel like it. Sometimes it was... Friends were doing something, or I wanted to be with my kids, or I wanted to do something else, and I had to go in there and write. And uh, I found that that was okay. I still could write good stuff. It didn't, the stars don't have to be aligned all the time to do good work, you know? And that was something I'm just figuring out now. So probably in the old days, you, you guys would probably be in the studio and, mm -hmm. and write while everybody's there. Was that the case? Yeah, but I was in a band where there were a lot of strong writers, and if I didn't come up with a song that year or songs for that album, nobody, I wasn't in trouble. Uh, David Page was the main writer in the band, and uh, he year after year would come up with a great batch of tunes, and, uh, um, um, and especially in the early days of the band, I was of the mind that if I, my lot in life was to be the synth guy in the band, I wanted the synths to be the best synths they could be. Um, I didn't want them to be presets and, or what I even did on sessions for other people. I wanted them to be epic in some way or some sounds people hadn't heard before or just use them in a real cool musical way. You know, uh, um, you know when I took lessons at Dick Grove when I was a little kid and I learned how to block harmonize saxophones Immediately what I thought about was putting them in a sequencer and having flutes play five-part block harmony in 30-second notes. You know, that's immediately where my head went was mm -hmm. the way I would use mm -hmm. that information. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, I was never going to be a Bill Holman, so I never really tried doing big band arrangements as much as I would have loved to. Bill. But I just, I just my whole thing was to always kind of take, take the, this information and kind of use it my way, in a way mm -hmm. that maybe someone else wasn't doing, and to try to carve out my own niche in the business. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what about, um, well, you do it well. Um, what about, um, how did you get the singers on your, your new album? You've got My, Michael McDonald, mm -hmm. and you've got Jamie Kimmett, and Mabuto Carpenter, yeah. Michael Sherwood, and mm -hmm. he wrote some co-wrote with you? Yes, right? he co-wrote most of the album with me. Mike so Sherwood. Michael McDonald, you've probably known for a long time. And mm -hmm. What about the other ones? Jamie well, sounds like a mm -hmm. new voice, really yeah, great. Yeah, he's just a kid I'm, 
I met through some mutual friends. You know, for me, this album wasn't about, again, me being the star of the show. When I used to think about doing a solo album, I always thought I would do kind of a Quincy Jones thing where I, I just kind of wanted the autonomy. I wanted to have the final say. I wanted to put together the songs. And, and I think of myself much more as a songwriter than I do as a, certainly as a singer or anything else. And um, I wanted to serve the songs. Mm -hmm. And that means, you know, I'm not going to be the singer for them. Well, you um, were on some of them. Great. Yeah, you no, did a great job as no, a No, and coming back in a total, I realized I had sung one song on our first album, I'd sung one song on our fourth album, and I'd written a couple other songs. And there was uh, a big section of the Toto fan base that likes it when I sing. And um, um, I realized that when I started the band again. So I wanted to, I wanted to sing some on the album, I'm, you know, more than I had planned before. But the rest of them are just me trying to serve the song. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, I had demoed all these things, and, and there was a couple that, knowing Michael McDonald like I did, I thought he'd be perfect for those songs, and I had him sing those. And the same with Mavuto Carpenter and mm -hmm. Mike Sherwood on the one song, and mm -hmm. Jamie. You know, I'd always been pitching songs to Michael Jackson over the years after Human Nature, and um, you know, there's a lot of guys out there that sing demos when you're pitching it towards Michael that are kind of Michael Jackson sound-alikes, and I always kind of hated that. But uh, for me, Jamie's a kid who has a beautiful voice, and he's not trying to sound like Michael Jackson, but you could see how maybe Michael could sing that song. So mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. what I was going for with, with him, and it worked great. I, I thought maybe we'd open up to questions. Absolutely. Does anyone have any questions? Yes? Hi, thank you so much for your talk today. I was just curious, um, when you're proposing for a TV show, how do you find... So how do you find the balance for your writing and what they might want that for a television show? For me, it's uh, um, it's it's it can be a struggle. Where you, the thing with scoring for me is to um, is to constantly be serving the picture. And for me, when I start writing something, often I'll, I'll, I'll get, I'll start, I'll have a new, um, I'll have a start that I really like, that really seems to serve the picture. It's just the right mood, it's just the right vibe, but as I'm composing, it's often easy for me to slip into the, the composition starts taking on a life of its own, you know? After I've been grazing so long at a certain place, I want it to go somewhere, and then it's natural for it to go here, and I would love it f to go there. And, and it's real easy to start straying from serving the picture. You know, I start serving the piece of music I'm doing, and uh, the picture takes a back seat, and that's, uh, that's not good. Um, so I'm constantly having to make sure that I'm always serving the picture and try to keep it easily, uh, keep it interesting musically. Does that help? Anything else? That's mine. Yes, Andrew Kessler. Is there uh, anything new in like the synth or keyboard world that you're checking out or keeping an eye out for? Anything new in the uh, constantly? It's um, you know it, it never ends. What I finally though have gotten good at, like I said, for a long time I was the synth geek in the band, and <laughs> you know I would jump into all that stuff. I wanted to be the first on my block. I had all this customized stuff and black boxes hooked up, and I wanted to really use this stuff in a really musical way. And quite honestly, for many, many years, my songwriting took a back seat to that, you know? 
Toto had plenty of songwriting cover. They weren't worried about my songs, you know, my contributions uh, to the band song-wise. And I, I, I really struggled with that stuff, learning that stuff, learning how to work that stuff. It took a lot of time. Um, but what's changed for me in a big way, and the reason why I was able to actually finally finish the solo album, is that I've really made some huge changes um, into the way I work. And I've realized, you know, back in the day, you kind of felt... Uh, um, in the early days of synthesizer, especially before MIDI and when MIDI sequences were first coming out, you'd get these things and as a working musician, as a, someone who did it, you'd think, oh, these guys, I have to tell these guys what they need to do. I have to tell them what features these need. I have to tell them what a working composer, what's, what's really missing from their software. And I would fill up reams of notebooks with suggestions for, for uh, uh, for features and all that. And by the time I'd send them off, I'd get an update in the mail that pretty much did everything I, you know, I'd spent all that time telling them. You know, it all of a sudden hit me that, you know what, there's a lot of guys doing this now. I don't need to be that guy anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't need to be that guy. Staying up all night. You know what I'm saying? Probably. Staying up all night. And I hear about it now. There's young guys and they're going down those rabbit holes and God bless them. You know what I mean? knock yourself out and be the first one on the block, you know what I mean, and have to deal with the bugs and all that. I'm kind of, uh, I'm much more interested now in finishing songs at this point in my life, finishing stuff, you know, developing that finishing muscle and getting finished products out there for me now. That's more important than being a synth pioneer or something. I'm totally kind of leaving that to other people. Now, having said that, though, I'm always on the lookout for something that I can take and exploit in a way that, that serves my individuality, you know, that separates me from everyone else, you know. So I am always on the lookout. How important are visuals for you? Uh, well, with film, it's real important. I, I, love, being, uh, I love being part of a, a bigger thing than just the music. After years and years of being in Toto and us taking the music so seriously and expecting people to sit there and listen to your album, uh, I, love, I loved working with film and not having to worry about lyrics and, and um, being a part of a bigger thing, being a part of a show. I, I love doing that. But um, again, I'm also finding, you know, that's with that, you're serving the picture, you're, or you're supposed to be all the time. And uh, doing this record, it just felt great to serve my songs as best I can. Mm. Yes. Yes. Hi, Steve. Uh, I work with lyricists as much as possible. I, I always, uh, um, it's funny, uh, the way Human Nature worked out, which is one of my best songs, was, was um, I had written, the chorus came to me like when I wrote the song, the lyrics to the chorus, but then my, my verse lyrics were very contrived and very forced. And, and Quincy, who loved the song and heard the demo and loved the demo, um, he one day sheepishly asked me if I would mind if he, um, if he had a guy named John Bettis take a stab at the verse lyrics. And I was like, absolutely. And uh, I didn't have to touch them. They were perfect. They were, the first time I heard them, they were exactly what you hear on the record. And it was a, a beautiful thing. But since then, I, um, there still always is, usually when I write a song, I'll write the chorus or I'll write the first verse. The lyrics will just come out and it, feel, it comes out in a very organic way and very real emotional way. And, uh, but then the rest of it starts feeling contrived and like too much work for me. And I'm not 
a wordsmith. I didn't pay much attention in English class, much to my chagrin now. And, um, you know, I constantly am bringing in people who I would like to think are as good lyrically as I am musically doing my, my thing, because I really want to make them as good as they can be. And then Steve asked, uh, what, what program do you use oh, yes. the, mo the most? I use Logic, but I hate it, you know? <laughs> I'm in Logic right now. I, I've been in Pro Tools, and that kind of spoils you as far as working with audio goes. I don't think anything comes close to that for audio, but um, I used to have this real complex setup where I had several different computers all locked up together, and one was doing my MIDI and Logic, and Pro Tools was doing my audio over here, and I had these Giga Studios being my samplers over there, and it was this huge kludge that uh, I was constantly having trouble keeping clocked together, and when I got the gig for Justified, I knew it was a very limited palette. I knew it was gonna be a very small palette. I didn't need a huge orchestral palette set up, so I, I decided to just do it all in one computer with Logic, doing the audio and the MIDI, and um, I've gotten used to it. I can work in it, but um, I have a lot of problems with Logic. I struggle with it. Curtis? So how many synths do you still have? How many synths do you still have? How many, How many synths? synths do I still have? Uh, you know, I still have a... You're talking about hardware synths? Yes. I've got a whole bunch. Numbers, I mean hardware, yes. Hardware synths, there's a lot. Um, you know, David and I were kind of of the mind a long time ago that we never really threw anything away or sold anything, but that wound up being a real bad decision because very recently, after some of these amazing keyboards were in storage for 30 years or, you know, um, I finally wanted to really our warehouse was so full of crap that I wanted to get to the really cool stuff like my ARP 2600s or my Yamaha GS1s, things that I'd been missing that were actually access to me at one point. And just about every single thing I pulled out, there was some kind of battery leakage or some <laughs> damage which rendered them useless. So I'm kind of turning over into one of those people that, you know, if I need something, I'll call Michael Boddicker and I'll know it'll be working and you know what I mean? And have it work and Don't have send to. it back to him. Let him yeah. store it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, yes, I wanted to know what do you keep in mind when you're working to uh, serve the song to say in the album? And then also, I wanted to know what your process was like co writing and how you make sure that you have an effective co writing session. So, what do you keep in mind when you're uh, working on an album and with the Keeping it together as a one, as with the songs as a one idea. Um, yeah, because you said that uh, you wanted to make sure that everything that you did on the album served the song. So on this song, you wouldn't be singing; you'd have somebody else sing. Mm -hmm. And how and how do you work with the co-writer? Yeah, how do you have an effective co-write session? Well, you know, just the the first thing is the song is to get the song together. You know what I mean? And uh, um, again, all of these songs, like on this project. All of these songs are, are, were always something that I started. They were always, I considered them all my babies, you know. Um, and then I would bring in people as I needed to finish him. You know, it usually was lyrics, but Mike Sherwood, who's my main co-writer, he brings in a, a ton of melodic ideas. He's an incredibly talented guy and, uh, and singer, and he brings in lots of melodic ideas. But um, again, we just would, you know, I'd want to finish the song and really serve the song, and sometimes it means making hard decisions where you kill yourself for two days writing a third verse, and then, <coughs> excuse me, I'd look at it, 
I'd look at it the next day and go, what does this mean, you know? Uh, it may be cool sounding, but I, I, I wanted it to be right. I wanted it to be as good as I can make it. So then once we had that intact, it was a matter of kind of sitting back. And I've always been a reluctant singer. I'm not one of those guys who's dying to sing everything. I just kind of want to sing my mid-tempo ballads that I do that's easy for me, that's in my range. And, and, um, but I'd like to think that I write a lot more than that. And uh, um, things like Painting by Numbers, my Voodoo Carpenter, he's just, he's got this kind of Luther Vandross voice that just, you know, goes places I can never even think of going. And it just, uh, then what we would do is put our producer hats on and think what's the best way to serve this song and who's really the best person to sing it. Um, my co-writer, Mike Sherwood, there was a couple songs that he had sung partly because they were in the wrong key for me, and, um, but I really wanted to take a stab at singing them, so we changed the key, you know. We did what we had to do and recreated it. Do you ever start with a title on uh -huh. a song? Sometimes, usually that initial writing thing, that initial German of an idea will, will, um, will give me a title. Something will pop to mind, or I'll just have one line or something. Sometimes, mm -hmm. not always. And so someday, somehow, that the name of the song and the name of the CD. Mm -hmm. um, how did you choose that? That's a great that name. That's a great title. That's, you know, I that was the strangest, strangest song I'd ever written as far as how it came about. And if you would have seen what it was like a month before the album came out and what the weird, strange pieces. And I never thought that would wind up on the album. <laughs> I never thought that would wind up finished because it was just so weird. And, um, but it came together. And uh, uh, that lyric, just that, that title just popped into my head when I just needed something that fit that, mm -hmm. the melody right there. Mm -hmm. It just worked out. Any other questions? Yes, I'm sorry. Um, so to piggyback off the co-writing question, mm -hmm. how did you first connect with Michael Sherwood? And then how did you establish that co-writing relationship in a way where you were going to have the final say on everything. He was really there to help you yeah. bring your babies to life. Good question. Good question. I'd, uh, I was in a band Toto that I'm still I'm back in them again, but when the guys would write, everyone kind of went off to their own corner. David Page would usually show up with the songs all finished and all ready to go. Lyrics, music, all ready to go. Luke would pretty much go in his corner. Um, you know, I... Nobody ever asked me to help them finish their songs because they usually were just fine finishing their songs. So I would go off in, in my corner. Um, and so my, all my first Toto songs are all just written by myself. And uh, um, Mike was in a band that I produced that I helped get a record deal with and we just kind of became fast friends. And I'd actually got asked to write, a, uh, uh, to submit a song for a movie and uh, I'd been working with Mike and his band, and I asked him to help me with the lyrics. And that was our first song we ever wrote, and it came out great. It just was, I, I realized too, he was a, uh, it was the kind of guy where too lyrically, I could, we could, he could kind of play psychiatrist with me. I could kind of tell him where things are really coming from with me. And uh, you know what I mean? Where the feelings that some of this stuff was coming from. I could talk to him without being embarrassed, and he would kind of help me. Um, bring it to fruition. Now, 
and Mike's got a very strong musical personality, and believe me, when we're writing, and for the most part, I, I've learned early on in being a synth programmer who had to walk into a lot of control rooms with engineers, you kind of learn diplomacy real well and how to play well with others, and uh, um, especially with writing, you know, if someone just feels that they're a sounding board, that every suggestion they make, you're going to say something else, they're not going to want to write with you for very long. You've got to, there's got to be some give and take. Um, even when it's something you're not sure you like. But once it, once the songs were finished and it got down to doing the record, you know, and it was my record, I sat Mike down. And, you know, and he, he, I gave him co-production credit um, in addition to my production credit and you know, he wasn't there day in and day out like, like I was, but he definitely contributed a lot. And I, I told him early on when the project began, I said, on this one, you got to do me a favor. And I'm way, way open to suggestions, you know, and I'll try anything, even if I don't agree with it. That's one thing that the whole home studio thing affords you is you, you can try anything, you know. Um, and quite often, I'd, my mind would be changed. You know, someone could easily change my mind, even though I was sure I was right. But again, at the end of the day, the final say was mine. And Mike agreed to, on this Steve Picaro CD, that I would get to have the final say. And he was great about it, and was never disheartened when I would shoot his ideas down repeatedly. <laughs> cool. Uh, Steve, I have... Uh more of a, a life question for you than a music question, really. Oh, dear. Like, <laughs> like and we have some, some younger folks here with us today. When you were, say, in your early 20s, you're working on your stuff, you're trying to become really good, you're, you're trying to get into the business, you meet this person, that person, oh my God, I just met Quincy Jones. You want to be part of that, but you're not part of that right now. And, you know, I think, at that same time, the rest of life is happening. You got to pay the bills, personal relationships, and, and all of that. How did how did you go about working through that period of your life? Oh boy. Uh, you know, to tell you the truth, I didn't do it really well. You know, to be honest with you. Um, but uh, to try and answer your question, you know. The thing was is to, you know, I, I always wished I went to school. I always wished I studied more. I never was on the level of a lot of the musicians I was playing with, which I kind of liked. I always kind of liked playing with guys who were better than me. You know what I mean? It always made me want to be better. And, um, but like I said early on when I kind of saw that gap and I kind of saw this little niche for myself, it's when I've strayed from that that I've really screwed up, you know. Mm -hmm. um, when I first started doing film, I just, I wanted to be James Newton Howard. I wanted to be my friend James. I, I was enamored with his talent and with what he did. And my first couple scores, I would try to do what James would do. And it just wound up being a watered down version of James Newton Howard. You know what I mean? It had nothing to do with, you know, not, not enough of me, I think, came through. Because I was kind of, I wasn't comfortable with myself or trusted that I had enough original things to say. Um, but again, for me, it all, it all goes back to uh, the individual thing, where I think um, if you just do your best, I mean, David Foster brought me in there for a reason, you know, brought me along with him for a reason. And um, if you do your best and you leave an impression on people and you separate yourself, you, you have something to bring to the party that no one else does. You know, and, I, and especially the thing for everyone to hear is that you don't have to be the best piano player in town 
you know, there's always going to be someone who plays better than you do. But just if you can find out what your thing is, you know, how you take your influences and mold them into your own personality and, uh, you know, the aspects of, you know what I mean? I, I mean, it just, for me, it just comes from everywhere. It comes from Keith Emerson. It comes from Klaus Ogerman. There's records of his I listened to when I was a kid where I use those chord changes every day of my life. I try to put certain suspensions in the music I play and just kind of, it makes it me to me, the way, the way I've combined things. And mm -hmm. I just highly suggest everyone kind of find their own, what makes them unique and go for the balls with that. You know, be the best version of yourself. And then you're not in competition with any people. You're not in comp competition with anyone. Mm -hmm. Great answer, great question. Anyone else? Over here. I'm sorry. Jack. If you had to come up with one tune that best represents who Steve Picaro is, if someone wasn't familiar with you and wanted to check out something, what would you suggest they listen to? Uh, you know. Besides I know it's an impossible TV. question, but yeah. you know. No, you know, really any of my songs, whether it was the very first one on the Toto, first Toto album, Taking It Back, or. On the fourth Toto album, uh, it's a feeling or human nature. You know, the songs that are really mine, it's, that's me. Mm -hmm. That's me. There's not another song on Thriller that has that form or anything kind of close to that. You know, two bridges. And I've always kind of lived my life too. This isn't a real smart thing to do, but I've always been enamored with exceptions to the rule. You know what I mean? Whether it was lyrically or musically, whether it was people breaking the three and a half minute barrier on the radio and putting on real long songs or uh, um, just exceptions to the rule. People saying, you can't do that. You can't be in a band and not tour. And then you see Steely Dan making great records and not touring and, you know, or um, I've just always lived my life that way. And I believe in my, in my songs. I like them a lot. And I, they're songs I'd like to hear. And um, Human Nature was a tough one. In, in the respect that Michael Jackson brought so much to the table on that, you know, it really kind of mm. spoiled. That's also why I stopped singing is because, you know, I saw what a great singer, somebody who's a real singer, a real artist, what they bring to the table, you know, and I just wanted that more, was trying to get other singers to sing my stuff. Mm -hmm. Human nature. Yes. Yes. One more question along those lines. Um, are you interested in writing more for other singers, it, like in your voice as the song, of course, but specifically for... Absolutely. I mean, again, it depends on the song, you know. Um, that's another thing, just like with film, a lot of times when you're, if you're, your career is a songwriter and you're really trying to get covers and you're targeting it, that's another thing where I would get in trouble. I'd be targeting a certain artist and you have to every step of the way think. Can you see this artist doing it? Would this artist really sing that lyric? You know, can you see this artist singing that lyric? Even though it may be a great lyric and the song, you know, isolated on its own, it may be fine. But if you're really targeting that for a certain artist every step of the way, you kind of have to make sure. And uh, too often for me, I'd be targeting someone, but then I'd go off and do some weird bridge or something that, you know, would be a tough sell. Couldn't help yourself. But I, I personally thought it was great. You know what I mean? I personally thought it was something I'd buy in a heartbeat if I heard that on the radio. Mm -hmm. So I went with it. What's your uh, is inspiration of playing your songs? Do you 
or like can you write without being inspired like inspired or like if you are inspired where does it come from is it like do you see like a, a random painting on the wall and you're like hey i have a song idea or like write about it's usually stuff in my life you know I had my heart broken by a girl real good in eighth grade, and that's been a source of inspiration ever since. Um, but also really just what's going on in life out there, you know, um, what's happen what happens in my life and stuff definitely influences. And what, if you're talking lyrically, what happens in my co-writers' lives too, enter into it, you know. I mean, I don't wish this on anyone, but my co-writer Mike Sherwood was going through some very tough emotional, personal relationship stuff towards the end of my project, and it was perfect. <laughs> I hate to Devil. say that. Don't tell anyone I said that, but he, he, came, he came to the studio every day just brimming with ideas and, you know, completely able to finish these songs we'd been working on for seven years or something. He all of a sudden had that, first lyric, that third verse lyric was right there. So, uh, yeah, that's the, that's the best place. That's the most real place, but... Um, yeah, sometimes a, a, a keyboard sound will inspire me, you know, or I'm inspired by all different stuff. Synth, synth sound. Uh, Milton. Uh, were you involved with that cool interlude on Rosanna, and how did that come about? Mm -hmm. it... the, the, synth, uh, the synth solo in Rosanna? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was one of my, um, that was something I was real proud of. Yeah, I worked really hard on that. I wanted, that was me wanting to show the difference between doing a Quincy Jones session and what I do in Toto you know, what I can do with synthesizers in Toto. That was actually like a, and believe me, my work habits could not have been worse in those days, but um, that was like a two-week process for me, <laughs> you know? And I just, you know, we had this room, David and I, I had a room at David's studio, I was living there at the time, and we just had this, um, I, it was my dream come true. I had this room filled with every synthesizer in the world, and two 24-track tape machines and a shelves full of blank tape. And I was in heaven. And uh, that was the first time the guys made me a slave. I had done, uh, the year before, we worked, the album we worked on, I was very frustrated because when we would do synthesizers, I'd have all the guys in the band standing over me like this. And they're the kind of musicians who, they're very fast in the studio. They're very good at what they do and they're very fast. And me, I'm not the same kind of, first of all, player they am, and I like to sculpt and think about it and experiment quite a lot. So uh, that, the fourth album, um, the fourth album, they actually let me make a slave tape that I could bring, and they said, well, of course, we won't use anything you do because you're not an engineer. But I, I had learned from an engineer friend how to get basic levels. I, I learned to remove the excuses why what I recorded couldn't be used. And I didn't, again, I separated those worlds. I didn't ever touch EQ or compression or anything like that. I just learned how to get my levels on tape. And um, I was able to do things like the Rosanna solo and they used everything I did at the end of the day. That's where, how I did all my synths for the most part on that album was by myself at David's. How did you play that live? I play it live all the time. <laughs> You can go online and see how I play it live. Sorry? Oh, that's what I'm talking about, yeah. Oh, I do it all live. It's, I kind of have orchestrate it and cheat a little bit with samples, but I do it. Anything else? Well, we'd like to thank you, and um, it's fantastic.
Is there another question? Oh, thank you. What do you think is the biggest thing you got from Claire Fisher was? Claire, I got a lot from. Claire was, uh, Claire was very, Claire didn't have any kind of real uh, curriculum, but um, he was really encouraging in a lot of ways, and he was very good. You know, Claire was a great organist. And um, one thing he would do, he'd, I'd be doing my piano lesson, and he would pull out his Fender Rhodes. And we got into a thing like drummers do as far as separating your hemispheres, playing multiple keyboards. That was something Claire did, which was very surprising. And harmonically, he, uh, uh, he had me do some exercises that were very cool. I can't really explain to you what they were. It was just some inner voicing stuff that he, some trick he used to do, and he showed it to me, and I would try to write using those things, and it helped a lot. Thank you, Steve. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another ASMAC podcast. We welcome your feedback at www.asmac.org. This is Kim Richmond, the president of ASMAC, and on behalf of the board, I would like to invite you to attend our events, including luncheons, master classes, First Wednesday's workshops, and our annual Golden Score Awards Banquet. For a complete list of our podcasts and DVDs, please visit our website at www.asmac.org. Many thanks to Larry Goldman of Balboa Studios for recording this talk. Editing was done by myself to prepare for broadcast. Thank you.